Well, it, we're back again. This is like the holiday edition or the last show of the year. How are you feeling? I, know. I feel good. I um I was gonna I have a Santa Claus hat and I was gonna put that on, but then I know if I do that, my hair's gonna get all messy and you know I'm I'm too vain for that. I do. I have a Chris. I have a Christmas tree over here. I can show that a bit later. Yeah, let's but... let's see the tree. Let, let oh, you go. Okay. Yeah, we gotta uh, see it. Christmas tree. <laughs> So I'll put that right here. It's a kind of like a Charlie Brown. It's like a Charlie Brown tree. Yes, it is. It's a, it, is. Know, it is. I could do something like this, and then it's definitely a Charlie Brown tree. Nice. What do you think? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's not real. That, yeah. We can tell. I, I, I'm not sure it's been fluffed appropriately. <laughs> awesome. Yes, um, but happy to be back. I mean, this is great. We have uh, a really, you know, we're, we're continuing a, a discussion, I think, you know, around artificial intelligence and yep. in healthcare. Um, as I remember, you know, we we, had, we started a really good conversation with uh, Matt Jackson, David Lipensky, who's our one of our guests returning. Um, I think it's been part of those early discussions. And along the way, I think we said, okay, this thing is really worth continuing, right? So yes. I think this is sort of a, you know, ongoing, this is the sequel in mm -hmm. all of that right so um we indeed we have david lipensky with us as well as in addition to david we also are joined by karan chahal uh with the um insight uh digital intel digital innovation team and our artificial intelligence in healthcare practice so i karan i know you can spend a lot more time getting detail in terms of where you are right now with insight but um i guess along the lines of you know I, we, we sort of prepped you a bit we told you that our tradition is to kind of ask our guests to give us a, a narrative in terms of their career and where they came from and how they got to where they are. We've always found that to be really interesting. So I'm, I'm wondering, we've heard David's before, um, and maybe David, after Karan's done, you can give us a, a real cliff note version, but Karan, would you mind telling us a bit about your past and, and how you get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I have a I have a very interesting, very diverse kind of uh, background. I started with the, uh, my professional career with being a molecular geneticist. So my first degree, um, master's and bachelor's was in human genetics, molecular genetics. And I was actually one of the very few who was selected by Michigan University to pursue uh, PhDs fully for us. Um, I mean, PhD scholarships on population genetics. Yeah, I, every time I hear these backgrounds, Bob, I just feel horrible about myself. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, actually think we should stop I, the podcast no, because no. her intelligence level has tripled your and I's combined. And, uh... <laughs> and then, Bob, Bob Elliot, there's interesting stuff to come. I came from a community like uh, uh, Indian background, you know, the family background where it is kind of, oh, girls should get married by 25. Girls should get married by 25. And 20 years ago, I think 98 I got married. Yeah, it was, you should get married. So everybody in my family was like, oh, you got to get married and you got to do PhD, whatever you want to do afterwards, that's it. So yeah, I met my husband in New York. Uh, he's from a UK, went to UK and over there wanted to do uh, master's and PhD. Actually, some kind of a further extension of my molecular genetics background because my husband is a core IT person. So I thought bioinformatics would be good. Uh, but that is how I got into information systems and computing because I was seeing human genome project at that time was in its full glory, Sanger Institutes, and they all were working on it. Uh, bioinformatics would be great, but that, that's how I got into information systems and computer science. 
worked in industry, uh, especially business process re-engineering and all those kind of transformations at that time, automation of business processes. And when I was working, realized there were certain problems, certain decision-making angles, complex. We don't have the right tools to solve right kind of problems. The approach is normally we have a tool and instead of problem dictating what tool we should use, we actually tailor the problem to the tool we have in the hand, right? Uh, and that was kind of so. So that that's what actually led me. Oh, this is there is a gap. There isn't anything right I can find out. So that's what actually led me to pursue my PhD doctorate in kind of uh, decision sciences and quantitative modeling, which is more of a mathematics for making effective decision making. And that actually coincides so well with the healthcare appetite at that time because healthcare was moving from um, yeah gut feeling decision making to more like evidence based decision making. Um, yeah, so uh, I was a doctorate. I worked in university as an academic. I was the module leader for MBA executive program for quite a few years, then went back to university, uh, back to kind of full industry full time. Uh, five years ago, um, my kids are all settled. They don't need me. And I was like, I need to be in the place where the action is. So I moved from London to SFO and the journey has been incredible. Um, yeah, so I was at Hitachi Vantara before joining Inside. I've been at Inside since last six months. Uh, and digital transformation in healthcare, leading that for an organization like Inside with incredible culture, couldn't have asked for a better. This is the best place to be in, in terms of healthcare digital transformation. It's happening. Um, and Inside, brilliant culture, brilliant uh, technical acumen. That's that's where I am. Yeah, perfect. Thank you very much. Um, David, do you want to jump in with a couple minutes? Yeah, you know, just to make everyone feel worse, um, I started off in commercial banking. And then two years after that, I went to work for um, Columbia Pictures and I worked there for five years in Hollywood. And then I uh, went to work for Microsoft and then uh, from there left to start my own healthcare company that was focused uh, internationally in the Canadian healthcare market. Uh, we got funding and built that up and I had an exit in 2012. Um, and I was also brought back to Microsoft to basically run their health services group for Canada. That was way back in 2008 when the first journey into cloud and Microsoft and healthcare began um, with the Connected Health Story. And then uh, from there, I came to Blue Metal and was acquired uh, almost eight years ago now. I think January 2nd is my eighth year anniversary at Insight. Um, and then uh, we've been at Insight ever since. So um, just as I've said, there's never been a better time in the history of healthcare to be in healthcare um, due to the technology and the enablement, the capabilities that are accelerating discoveries. Um, the global collaboration simply even around COVID has been you know, astonishing. I think everyone's gotten a sense for, wow, things are moving a lot more quickly in, in life sciences and discovery uh, than they ever have. And um, so th the opportunity to conti continue to permeate that through, you know, different levels of the industry um, and, and different sectors of the industry is, is really what gets me up in the morning and makes me super excited. So looking back, I've got almost 25 years, I think, in healthcare and life sciences uh, experience. So long run. Yeah, I bet you've seen a ton of change. Yes, a uh, ton yeah. of change for the better. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. right. Well, well said, well said. So um, earlier when we were just just before we got on the call, um, I think David 
uh, Karan, you were both mentioning that we're, we're seemingly in front of a tidal wave of development, a tidal wave of evolution, um, and that there's, it's not, my guess is that there's a handful of variables that are driving, you know, these outcomes. And then I'm sure you could articulate what that means when you say there's this tidal wave of innovation right now. Um, could that be a place for us to start the conversation? Sure. Sure. Any thoughts? Come on. I mean, I'd love to hear what you think. I think I think we are just at the right time, right time when the convergence of technology is happening and there is a right appetite. Sometimes you can have those technical feasibility and all that, but then the then the appetite from the user side, from the community where it's going to have impact is not there. But we are at that phase where there is full appetite and we have the maturity of technology, maturity of very diverse technologies, be it genomics, be it IT, be computing, the infrastructure side, the data side, and all this convergence point is such a kind of a unique opportunity to, to, to benefit the society, to benefit the humanity in a very, very positive way. Okay. Dem democratize uh, healthcare. Can we talk about the healthcare, well, and specifically hospitals as a business? Uh, I, I have a question. I, I, at Insight, I work with a few hospitals, and it's, it's very interesting to me that they're on different spectrums um, coming out of COVID or during COVID. Uh, yep. One hospital I work with said that they lost a lot of money um, during COVID because they yep. weren't able to do other surgeries and things that really make the the hospital money. Other hospitals I read about in, in, the, in the news and the media is that they've had some of the largest revenues that they've ever had due to COVID. Um, can can you talk a little bit about what's going on in the industry as a whole and and where where are they seeing successes and where they're struggling on a high level? Sure. Um, great question. So. Um, I think we have about 6,000 hospitals across the United States and um, about uh, almost 1,000 of them pre-COVID were basically in plus or minus single digit P&L margins. So um, you're talking about mid-level rural hospitals, community-based hospitals that are vital and essential to healthcare across the country um, that were really struggling. Um, uh, COVID um, in terms of the government reimbursement around uh, folks with Medicare and Medicaid or, or uninsured um, you know, that's been largely um, supported by by government funding. But when you're talking about um, upper level hospitals, when you think about Mass General Brigham, you think about uh, uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, those types of higher end surgical um, preeminent institutions, their bread and butter is is surgery and throughput. Right. So I'll give you an example. Um, at MGB, Mass General Brigham uh, Partners Healthcare, it's the largest health system in, in New England, um, affiliated with Harvard Medical School. So uh, pre-COVID, if you were going in for a shoulder surgery, like an orthoscopic surgery, um, by the time you were completed to the time that they, they scrubbed the OR down and basically rolled a new patient in and prepped the whole uh, surgical suite was about 11 minutes. Um, during COVID, it's over an hour. So they've got to come in, they've got to fog the room, they've got to wait for the fog to settle, then they've got to mop the floors. And so when you're talking about the ability for specialty, um, connective tissue, um, you know, uh, uh, GI surgeries, and, and obviously orthopedic surgeries, 
um, those are the bread and butter of of those those institutions, those hospitals. So when you're when you're reducing throughput uh, that significantly, it has a major uh, negative impact in terms of their P and L. Interesting. Gotcha. So if they're if they're going from eleven minutes to an hour, their throughput is is basically decreasing by a huge amount of surgeries every day, every week, every month. Then, so they're sure. losing that revenue. Interesting. Yep. Okay. There's only so many ORs to be able to do the surgery, and then you've got people, especially in around uh, elective surgeries, that certainly waited for th three to six months or longer. And, and obviously, there's a there's an, a horrible opportunity cost with respect to waiting to see the doctor, especially when you get into more urgent things, such as when you know your your knee hurts or you fell. Um, you know, there are things you can do to mitigate that. Um, you can put a brace on, you can ice it, you can elevate it, you can do different things. But um, when when cancer's metastasizing and you don't know it, or uh, my mom had a brain tumor removed um, just before COVID, and she hasn't been to her last two. Um, uh, uh, scan appointments uh, because there have been spikes in COVID and she's immunocompromised. So that's a perfect example of of when um, when the, the the system's disrupted to this degree and we have to treat patients um, with COVID, um, and certainly we do. Um, it does put a tax on uh, healthcare in a number of different ways uh, in the system, both financially and and from an outcomes perspective. And is there so is there an AI approach that improves throughput or is that just sort of the state of affairs right now i think um, um yes yeah. David, please go ahead i was just going to say um you know telehealth is certainly exploding yeah. um so virtual consultation is is going to be um a continued uh growth phase uh for healthcare um and we're getting to the point where the government and and payers insurance providers are 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 willing to reimburse for those visits that you know, post-surgical post appointments, for example, depending if it's minor surgery, let's say you, you got a, a wart removed or you had a, a mole removed from a dermatology perspective. Well, you can get on the phone and have a virtual appointment and put your camera right on the area and, you know, uh, you can send images to into the doctor that can be blown up that are high res from your phone. So there are, there are things that can be done from a telehealth perspective that allow that visit and that continuity of care to continue um, without being disrupted. Uh, but leverage virtual consultations either pre or post-surgical. And, and AI chatbots, especially in the COVID, actually uh, identifying triaging depending on the symptoms, uh, that was a great success during COVID. But again, it comes down to uh, digital transformation. The organization, especially the healthcare hospitals, which had a better kind of uh, robust operational backbones, had lesser of a technical debt. Uh, they were agile enough uh, to incorporate and leverage these technologies. Uh, we've seen uh, hospitals like Cleveland Clinic, they're like pre-COVID and post-COVID, there is a kind of a phenomenal jump in uh, telemedicine. Mm -hmm. So definitely if you your operational backbone, your um, uh, kind of technique, you don't have technical debt, you're on cloud, you're on the emerging techs, it's much more easier to leverage and uh, new technologies to pivot your business models, how you interact with your patients, how you engage with how your services, remote monitoring is happening with computer vision and so on. And it's just 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 if you have a robust data and AI kind of a strategy, how to leverage data and how to leverage data from all these available devices to actually serve the uh, population better. I think I think one last thing I'll say is um, certainly really on computer vision into 
to uh, Karen's point, the opportunity for um, uh, resources that are more scarce, such as is reading scans, radiological scans, especially when you get into the rural hospitals, they're able to take the scans, but do they have the radiology capacity to be able to get those reviewed in a timely manner? Does that patient need to stay in the hospital? They need surgery immediately. Do they need to be transferred to a, a larger institution? So, um, or can they wait? So a lot of those uh, scan readings are, are very timely. So being able to do that virtually and, and go to centers um, when there are surges um, where there's more capacity, radiological review capacity, and then being able to get those answers back quickly um, to those rural hospitals is something um, that I think is really important. And we're actually working um, uh, on a project right now um, that's uh, government funded to basically allow uh, certified clinicians to remotely um, set up and manage infusion pumps and ventilators. Uh, setting up an infusion pump is, is uh, and managing it is, is much simpler than the complexity of setting up a, a ventilator. But again, if, if we can start to, to create the, the backbone to enable that capacity um, so we can take care of patients in real time, but be able to do it remotely uh, with expertise and care and AI, then um, you know that's providing the scale that uh, our health system is going to need more desperately than ever, be, and that, than ever because we're going to continue to see attrition um, in the healthcare ranks from the top down. Um, uh, you know, our, our clinicians globally are just uh, overtaxed um, and they're they're tired and they're they're getting burned out, and there weren't enough of them anyway. Our curve is is negative. If you look to the future, you know, we're an aging population. You use 80% of the healthcare in the last 20% of your life. And we're seeing a precipitous decline in the number of clinicians that are still um, serving uh, patients. And, and there's been a reduction in both medical and, and nursing school um, uh, continuation and, and graduation. So, um, you know, we are going to need to leverage technology to help bring care to people and to best manage care for people that need it um, in different ways. Um, just to add on to David's point, leveraging data and technology uh, to, to the number of uh, medical graduates declining, I have about, I, I always say half of my family lives in Silicon Valley, the IT kind of, uh, I am, I'm a typical Indian, right? Half into IT and half into the medical profession. And <laughs> And I see the burnt out. I see the burnt out. Why graduates at a kind of a medical graduate numbers are declining continuously. And it's just kind of all the administrative work they have to do, the records they have to, the data they have to enter into computer and the lesser and lesser time they spend with patients and also the time they spend with patients, the engagement. It's not like one to one, which they enjoyed and which was actually the kind of a, um, you know, the criteria why they started, why they wanted to be, there are certain empathetic kind of a traits why you want to be a doctor, medical doctor, right? And they, they were being compromised on those. And data and AI have definite kind of a, a, a large play uh, to help a physician in that that domain where they can where they can really start enjoying it. There's a company called Nuance. They have developed Ambient Dragon, which is like the doctors, they don't need to enter their enter their notes when they're while they are seeing patients. The technology automatically transcribe the notes and enter them, kind of integrate the, those into EHR. So those things kind of they can definitely help and also increase the throughput because doctors spend a lot of pajama times actually writing the notes, putting the notes into the systems. Yeah, no, really super. And, and all of that does tie to um, AI. You know, when we talk about 
the being able to listen to somebody transcribe and it capturing it and putting it into data that's you know i mean that's part of it the um one of the things that you know david you brought up which i find very fascinating is the idea of using ai for diagnosis um i think mm -hmm. you know you're saying um you know and that makes a ton of sense to me um and i know that it's not a perfect answer to diagnosis i know it's a combination of physicians plus ai but it does give that scaling benefit that I think you're talking about, the ability for us to be less body dependent, you know? And I, I guess I wonder um, where, how do we collect that data? You know, who, is there a central repository for, you know, if there's CAT scan data that has specific diagnosis and, you know, who's capturing that data? Where is it being, you know, held and how does that work? So um, when it comes to imaging, um, imaging is one of the, the the best examples of where AI can make meaningful and massive difference. Um, computers can see at the megapixel letter, uh, level. Uh, we as humans cannot. So when you're talking about slight anomalies in scans that are are almost nearly un 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 undiscernible to the human eye, um, we have an opportunity to leverage computer vision. And what, what I like to call is informed clinical decision support, right? We're not going to basically give a patient a diagnosis and spit out, you know, the answer and, and hand it to a doctor. What we're going to do is to say, this is this is why we're concerned, or this is what we think it is, or this is where you should look, and this is what we're concerned about. So we want to we want to lead them to their discovery um, when we see things that are that are uh, concerning to us. So you know, those scans are taken and they're they're stored in repositories called you know PAC systems, um, uh, and then those are obviously available through the EMRs, uh, through the hospital systems. So um, uh, from an academic research perspective, we can actually you know, do um, a machine learning algorithm on uh, different patient cohorts with, let's say, astrocytoma brain tumors at, at different stages and look for commonalities or similarities for, from a, a, an academic and clinical research perspective um, or any tumor um, anywhere in the body similarly. Um, but I think the biggest gold near term which is going to save doctors time and give them more time with patients. Um, and, and there's a huge, vast treasure trove of information, both from a research and a, a, a precision medicine, personalized medicine perspective today, um, which is in the clinical notes. If, if you know, using Dragon Software, and which uh, Microsoft just acquired uh, this year, um, and they're bringing uh, more pervasively onto their healthcare platform, but but being able to speak as a clinician and and develop the the clinical notes rather than have to type them into a system tabularly or write them down in check boxes, and then have that system be smart enough to basically input that information consistently and predictably every time in the EMR, which is a, a huge benefit, um, and then to be able to mine that information and and understand those clinical terms and to be able to do something meaningful with it to to search that and understand maybe there are correlations here that need to be pushed up and elevated you know, to the specialist that um, to help them understand, you know, almost like kind of looking at a word cloud, right? Um, so being able to have starting points where we can help to light the way for clinicians to be able to, to focus their time and energy much more quickly and specifically. Um, and, and clinical notes is going to be a massive benefit to not only inpatient care and precision medicine, but also uh, to academic research going forward. It's the biggest untapped area of yeah. power in healthcare we have. And coming down to especially imaging and uh, image recognition, I mean, it's kind of it's 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 kind of getting more and more proven that uh, the AI uh, computer vision is doing performing even 
better than the humans. And it's yep. also kind of... They can uh, just see what we can't. <laughs> and the way I understand precision medicine, in a, you know, again, just at a very high altitude, it's, you know, when we seek to diagnose what's concerning a patient, the more data we have from distributed data sources, the more accurate we can be in our in, in creating precise diagnosis. And that artificial intelligence and all the massive amounts of data that's out there give us give us the ability to be more precise in our diagnosis. And then prior to AI, the diagnosis would be limited to what a particular doctor knows and is limited to just sort of a general understanding or less data, right? Mm -hmm. Is is that the nature when we talk about you know precise precision medicine? Is that what that is? So um, precision medicine is. Oh, go, go ahead, Kieran. Please, please, you know. David. I will. I will just add on to your point. Okay. Yeah, please go ahead. Okay. So, um, yes, that's part. That's precision medicine in part. But when you think about um, uh, understanding a patient at the genomic level, right? Um, basically, understanding them as a human being apart from any other human being. What are their genetic predispositions to disease? What are their genetic predispositions to obesity? What are their pre genetic predispositions to, to heart disease? Um, there were things that could be genetically modified in the future. Um, you know, there's ethics, you know, questions that, um, you know, we won't open that can of worms today. But if you know that you can make a, uh, a gene modification um, that is going to uh, reduce or eliminate a chronic disease in the future that is going to impair the person and add cost to them, the healthcare system, and, and you can eliminate that and make them a healthier human being um, at any point in their life, then then that's an that's a that's an opportunity to do, you know, uh, the right thing provided it's done the right way ethically. Um, so, you know, genetics is going to become um, it's not only going to be just your problem list, your your what are your medications, you know, how do you smoke, do you drink, do you exercise? It's going to get down to the molecular level in terms of, of having a much deeper understanding of your physiology personally um, and your family's physiology similarly um, and understanding being able to force multiply on your health history story um, and be able to, to leverage that information and then to design therapies that are specifically targeted for your immune system. Right at the molecular level. So um, this is something that's becoming much more pervasive and commonplace with with cancer uh, cancer um, uh, treatments um, that are usually less invasive and um, uh, ha are having a higher degree of success and outcomes. So we're we're definitely moving in the right direction. And and that's something that you know five or six years ago um, you had to go to Sloan Kettering or Mayo or, or MD Anderson to kind of you know sink your teeth into. Now you're you're able to do that um, in, in you know, any city, any major city across the country, um, and be able to get to that um, type of care. So um, that's exciting. And then being able to to again have more data that's organized to be able to research uh, disease and cohorts of disease, um, and do that at a global level and in terms of collaboration is really exciting. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. So, so just 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 add on on to David's point. So genetics one, and there there's so many variables which actually affect the health outcome of a patient, and which actually affect the what treatment they should be given. Genetics one really big variable. Then social determinants of health. Then the longitudinal kind of their health uh, uh, records, like 
which David just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, the ability to mine data from the EHRs, right? So it's 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 just not possible for a human to comprehend all those different variables, right? And different problems. But but the computers, data and AI, I mean, they they definitely um, um, augment. Uh, they have that ability to to uh, comprehend the data from multiple sources and data which have multiple kind of impact. So definitely, I mean, this is this is kind of the direction in which we can have a more tailored, more precision, more personalized kind of a treatment uh, for a patient, which will result in better outcomes. So th that leads into where I was going with my question. So that's perfect timing. So I'll give you a recent uh, situation I had with my family member. Uh, we went into the hospital uh, to do a procedure. It's about two, two hours outpatient. Doctor had called and said the levels were low. We need you to go in. So we went in. Um, I'm sitting in the emergency room with my family member, and I'm thinking as I sit there and watch the folks come in, you know, what we're here for is not really an emergency. Um, and should I be sitting in this room with all the other folks that are coming in with their own situations? And it, it got me thinking, you know, okay, this, there's gotta be a better way. Not everything's an emergency when you need to go to the hospital. The second issue I had was it the, the procedure, give or take, it's about a two hour procedure. From the time we checked in to the uh, emergency room and then by the time we left, it was over seven hours. So I, it got me thinking of a couple things, right? How can AI help the customer experience, right, in these type of situations? And then secondarily, I was also sitting there thinking, um, this is a business, right? There is a business here for, um, you know, for them to continue to keep my family member there, even check them into the hospital, even have them stay for a couple of days. Um, and do those lines get blurred sometimes between, you know, doing the right thing for the patient and then trying to um, make profit margin? I'm sorry, there's a lot in there, but those were the things I was thinking about it as I had, you know, seven hours to think about it, to contemplate it. So, um, it, it really got me thinking that there's a lot of things in play here and how, how can we, one, make it better, and two, how can we justify the difference between a business and doing what's right for the patient, and bo or both? So the, the, it's, it's, it's a very, very loaded question, Bob. There are yep. too many questions. It's uh, <laughs> too many questions. If I look at patient experience, is definitely one of the, the, the how how to enhance the patient experience when you're waiting in the waiting room with other. I mean, I I have had a family experience where somebody had to wait in the waiting room, um, and there were other COVID patients, and unfortunately, that person passed away because he contacted COVID in the waiting area when it in in the just initial stages of when this whole epidemic started when we didn't know much about it how it works um so that's that that's one and then procedures actually need two hours or max two and a half hours and then you actually spend seven hours in the hospital is it really kind of it's affecting both ways it's not only affecting the patient experience but it's also affecting the 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 throughput of the hospital because the hospital beds 
doctors, they are they are kind of they are being consumed while you are still there, and they are very very expensive resources. Um, so, uh, David, I would like you to kind of because you know we we actually at Insight we have some kind of uh, solutions we offered uh, where patients they don't have to they're kind of the apps which tells them how to check in where they are, how to navigate through the hospital system, how to so that that the the extra waiting time they spend in the uh, A&E that can be minimized. Uh, David, do you want to do you want to elaborate on that app? We did, for, you we did for children hospital. Yeah, uh, sorry. Um, so just taking a step back uh, to kind of address the, the question globally. So um, the US healthcare system is is transitioning over a decade or so from what was called evidence based care or episodic care where you know you could go in as many times as you want and they'll they'll see you and they'll give you the test and they'll give you the, the medicine and and um, they'll gladly see you again next week to value based care meaning that insurance companies and the government for medicare and medicaid patients are going to pay on outcomes and pay on prevention right so what are you doing to prevent a patient from having this reoccurrence you know uh, happen again and obviously there are some medical conditions where that's just not possible um but for the most most part there are so and i think the decentralization of care um, in the united states is going to play a huge role in time saving so not only we we see an explosion of telehealth so you know you can i can get on a virtual uh uh, discussion with a clinician and say, look, I've got a sinus infection again. I need amoxicillin and um, it can be delivered to my house. I don't even have to leave. Right. And I can keep working or doing what I'm doing. And, and, and the prescription shows up within an hour and a half. That's that's where we're heading in terms of just qualitative um, interaction. And obviously we have apps um, that, that do surveys for daily living that help you understand what are your propensities for uh, greater risk uh, in terms of your health systems. We can we can match that. Um, kind of branch and skip logic and that that conversation that you could have with a virtual health assistant in the morning. How did you sleep last night? What was your pain level? Are you nauseous? Are you more nauseous than you were yesterday? So those those answers um, uh, that you provide um, and speaking again, now we're, we're getting natural language processing. So we're picking up, you're, you're creating a conversation rather than entering into a, a mobile UI and, and checking a box or, uh, you know, sliding your finger up and down in terms of, uh, so you're, you're getting a much greater picture of the patient's uh, condition. We can even understand when patients are in pain, um, you know, from a cognitive services perspective. So uh, a lot of good things are going to happen to decentralized care. So you, you see a, a, a huge increase in, in community care centers. You have health systems in your, your neighborhoods, um, but now you're seeing kind of satellite offices where they have kind of primary care, minute clinic, dock in the boxes, you know, all that type of thing. They're going to continue to provide more and more services like infusion, for example. If you, if you need a transfusion for something um, or if you need something um, that is um, – you know, non-emergent, then they want to keep you out of that hospital because A, it's more dangerous um, from a health perspective and you're you're compromised. And B, to your point, it takes a hell of a lot longer. So um, I think we're going to continue to see more uh, uh, value-based care delivery uh, in the country. That's what the insurance companies are going to reimburse on. We're going to have more connectivity to um, experiences that allow us to interact more freely. Um, and then we're going to have more services available to us, like delivering medications, uh, virtual consultations, and community-based care um, delivery that's right down the street. Um, you don't need to, you know, 
go up or down into a parking garage, uh, you know, 12 flights uh, to be able to find a parking spot and then walk into this huge labyrinth to, you know, get something done. You can pull in and and have an appointment and just be seen and and get in and get out. So that's where we're headed. Good. Yeah, that, and, that's that's good news. And the interesting kind of thing, the business, like in the hospital, where we are in the business of providing care, but the hospitals, the traditional models being like they are reimbursed on the procedures they have provided. Uh, so it was more the reimbursements was more volume based. And as David mentioned, it's moving from volume based to value based. And in the value base, you are responsible for the well-being, for taking care of the well-being of the certain population. And that just changes the whole dynamics between purely business, purely like a capitalist kind of a mindset to actually more like the care we are providing. So we are really focused about the health outcomes of the population. Then that's where uh, data and AI can 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 really, I mean, help the hospitals in understanding their community matters, in understanding the social determinant um, of health uh, factors which affect the health of the communities, uh, and be more proactive in managing the well-being of human um, populations. Yep. Well, that's great. I had no idea on that value base. To that, uh, that's news to me. So, thank thank you so much. Sure. Let's hope it gets there. <laughs> so just, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you know, you got to start with a vision. So that's that's right. really good. Um, and, you know, just to sort of segue from, I think, a hospital centric conversation to just sort of a personal health conversation. I, I just like today, just kind of going doing a little bit of research before this came across something that I hadn't read before, this notion of an Internet of medical things which, um, you know, I, I, it makes a ton of sense. You know, it's, it's you know, the, I, I imagine things like the Garmin device or things that are capturing my personal health, you know, on a, you know, as a device and then mapping that data to, you know, some form of algorithm to help me become a healthier person. It, I'm sure there's a huge story there. Um, anything that we, we think about when we get into that space? Wearables, medical devices, like wearable, they are going to play whole, a big role and Internet of medical devices is all about like I, I'm sure. Are you guys wearing your Apple watches, Fitbits? Yep. <laughs> so they are they are they are generating enormous. Uh, yeah, they're generating enormous amount of data continuously all the time. Right. And those signals, right. That data, if it gets integrated into our EHRs, that's that's kind of a proactively warn you if something there. There was a recently a project by Omron, the blood pressure measuring company. They were like zero zero heart attack kind of the project was zero heart attacks, and they have this watch which. Uh, they were quite advanced in their technology, which was not only measuring the heart rate and other things, but also the blood pressure uh, continuously of the patients. So, so, so you can you can proactively you can see the trends. You are 24/7 getting monitored. You can see the trends. You can see how your physiology is performing and can have a proactive uh, uh, you know um, measures. To address those, if they are, you get the warnings. Uh, your your heart is kind of, uh, you know, the rate is 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 not what it needs to be. So all those and uh, uh, David, we have done some similar work in the chronic disease management in the diabetes uh, diabetes. And uh, uh, do you want to do you want to uh, add on this? Yeah, but sure. wearables um, are going to have a big big role uh, in future. In fact, one of the interesting things I wanted to say was Apple's uh, CEO. Uh, sorry, David, I just 
wanted to pass on to you, but then this thinking. He said, uh, if you look back in the kind of after uh, a decade, look back, what was the Apple's major contribution to the mankind? And that would be in the healthcare. And and that's 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 kind of amazing. So he, he, definitely he's talking about the variables, the Apple devices, which can um, proactively uh, kind of uh, allow us to have those preventive measures. Yep. Sorry, David, so, I'll pass on to you now. <laughs> yeah, sure. So obviously wearables, um, you're, 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 everyone has a supercomputer in their pocket and it's connected to smart devices like a watch, um, other medical devices uh, that you'd be wearing. You have diet, fitness, nutrition applications. Um, we know how many steps you do. We're, we're getting better at monitoring your, your, your CO2 and your, your O2 respiration. Um, so there's there's a lot of benefit that's coming and it's being miniaturized to the point where you can wear it um, and it can provide a, a continuous or periodic um, assessment and then be able to scattergram that and, and understand, you know, what are the differences in you from morning to afternoon to evening, you know, in terms of your 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 breathing, your your respiration, your heart rate, your uh, blood pressure, all, all kinds of different things. So that's all going to be goodness um, and it's only going to benefit you. I think the, the biggest offer and then obviously we're bringing uh, more intelligence to the edge in terms of just Internet of Things, right? We're bringing compute to to those devices to be able to start making decisions. So we don't have to centralize all that information and then compute on it. We can compute on it at the edge and then basically send those kind of advanced messages into healthcare providers or to patients to say, look, we think that, you know, you've got an AFib arrhythmia issue um, that's that's popping up that um, we're concerned about. We need you to go take your medication, call your doctor, you know, that kind of thing. So in addition to that, you look at chronic disease. Um, chronic disease is, is becoming much more chronic than it ever was. There are children being born today with, uh, you know, there's gestational diabetes, there's juvenile di diabetes, there's a, uh, there's a global obesity um, uh, problem. Um, and obviously that leads to many early onset uh, challenges. Certainly nutrition is a big part of that. But when 60% 60, 60 plus of, of any chronic disease is lifestyle modifiable and preventable, it's, it's understanding what is your propensity for change? It, you know, I know I need to stop drinking. I know I need to start working out, doc, but I'm just not doing it, right? So I continue to have uh, uh, hypertension and, and diabetes. So I think AI can help play a role as a, as a health coach. And what is your propensity for change, you know, from a lifestyle and behavior modification perspective? How can, how can we gamify and make that, uh, that personalized experience meaningful to you in ways that um, just aren't, when you see the doctor twice a year or once a year and they say you really need to start doing this or that yeah yeah i know i know i need to lose 20 pounds i, I you know i'm going to start getting on it i'm i'm going to get back to the treadmill well if you have something that is with you that's looking at your activity and and, and things every day with your permission then it can provide you more interesting information about your your health improvement your health risk and decline so i think we can be more impactful in helping to educate patients um, and motivate patients and and support patients, um, you know, through social listening and social media, um, you know, for your family members and so forth. So I, I think all of that plays a, a, an interesting role in the future because chronic disease is just such a pervasive issue globally, and that's a huge cost center. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Uh, I've exhausted my questions, Bob. Yeah, well, I think we've come to the end, but that is uh, fantastic. I, I love <laughs> the idea about devices, uh, right? Being able to prevent uh, someone that's high risk for a heart attack to know exactly what's going on before one starts. 
um, you know, having better information on your wrist, right? I always wonder when I go in and do blood pressure at the doctor's office and it's good. I always wonder, well, how do you know it's good today, but bad in 20 minutes when I go back to work, right? So, uh, you know, being able to get that information, I think is just great. So thank you both again, uh, really great information. Uh, you uh, taught both of us a lot and hopefully the audience got a lot out of it as well. So thank you for your time today, very much appreciate it and wanna wish everyone a happy holidays and we will talk to you next year. Looking forward to Thank it. You, happy holidays, everyone. Thank you, and happy holidays, everyone.